Ah, all right, all right, all right. Okay, 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 okay. Hi, this is Kristen Hirsch, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Digital Editor Chris Catchpole and Kristen Hirsch. Hello, gang. Hello. Hello. <laughs> now, singer, songwriter, guitarist, memoirist, triathlete, independent musician. <laughs> no, it's got to it's be in there, Kristen. You do your research. <laughs> <laughs> Tri- triathlete, independent musician, mother of four boys. Kristen Hirsch has been putting us all to shame for the past 40 years. With glorious alt-rock legends throwing muses, the cathartic and joyous 50-foot wave, and 12, 12 count them, remarkable solo albums, including her next one, the personal, passionate, and quietly intimate Clear Pond Road. Before we start, here is a wee taster from Clear Pond Road, the cryptic and bewitching Ms. Haha, written by Kristen Hirsch and released on Fire Records. Kristen, it is a delight to have you on the show. Um, one thing I was wondering, listening to, um, listening again to Clear Pond Road um, this afternoon, is that it sounds like, I think, one of the most heartening albums of your career. And, and knowing the kind of complex and difficult relationships you've had with your own songs down the years, how do you kind of look upon this most recent collection? I guess... Cutting to the chase, my question is, how do you get along with your songs these days? Oh, what a lovely thing to ask. I get along quite well with them, actually. And the only reason I didn't is because they were so impactful. And when you are not living easily, uh, impact can respond to seismic activity. Most of that is an external valuation of something meaningful. So when you get past the ripples on on your life pond, the impact is still there. In fact, you realize you've been living at the tip of the iceberg. The impact is the whole iceberg. And what an honor that is, as long as you can sort of maintain, which is difficult in this industry, to say the least, if you... If you don't engage with the ripples, which would be where, you know, style sits, uh, fame sits, money sits, that, that stuff, stuff that doesn't matter. Then when something matters, it can hurt. And you have to yeah. get to a point where you say, well, this, this doesn't hurt because it matters. The one, one of the things I like about um, Clear Pond Road is the sound of it, the actual kind of acoustics of it, the, and there's a use of ambient sound on it, which feels very benign. And that kind of seems significant given the sort of, I think, often granular role that ambient sound has played in your life and in your songs. Ah, yeah. And and I wonder kind of, was that a conscious thing of kind of incorporating and bringing in these kind of often quite sort of soothing and benign ambient sounds into the record? I'm a wee bit obsessed with mic placement. Yeah. When I record a, a cello, it's um, it can be sort of a violent sound. It's got a big body cavity like a horse and a lot of texture. So if you want to alarm someone, <laughs> put a mic right next to the bridge of a cello. If you want to soften your song's effect, put the mic in the room somewhere or up on the staircase and let them gradually face what the cello brings. And if if the song itself 
is the part of the presentation with the body cavity, it can be very alarming to, to shove mm. it in somebody's face. And I don't pretty up anything. So the song itself is not going to be pretty. The mic placement won't be pretty. Nothing is going to be pretty. So I often have to do myself and the listener the favor of ambience that is not connected with the instruments, that is more of how it feels to be an impressionistic listener in the world. So I will, I drive my engineer nuts because he's like, no more goddamn birds, Chris. <laughs> got enough birds. But you, you get the sense that you belong in the space when there is an ambient sound that you are familiar with, that you're comfortable with, that is from planet Earth, as opposed to where you usually put the listener, which is right in the middle of the band. And yeah, that's alarming to anybody. It's alarming to me, and that's my job. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think you've kind of, you nailed it there. There's, there's that sense of kind of listening to this album and feeling like you belong in there, and which, you know, which isn't always the case with the Kristen Hirsch album. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes there's a sense in which kind of you're, you know, in terms of mic placement, there's the term of listener placement in terms of where the listener is in <laughs> yeah. relation to, to the songs that you're performing. And sometimes you can feel, at, you know, out on the edge of them. Sometimes they can be right in front of you. Right. But with this one, it felt like you you could inhabit the space that you were singing these songs in, which, right, which I loved. That is so good to hear. I was hoping I wasn't just assuming that this was a gift and it's more of a curse to lay on the, your ears. But it felt like a nice yeah. place to be. Mm. As as sad as it can be sometimes, it's not so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> For me, kind of following on from what Angie said, one of the things I was really struck by is, is, is how your sort of instrumentation, it kind of, it, it just holds the whole thing together. It's almost like a scaffolding, particularly with what you did with sort of the acoustic guitars in it and layering it up. Um, I read this fantastic, I read this fantastic quote where you described what I mean, what you've done with sort of those acoustics as as the skeleton, and then the strings would be uh, the lungs, and the glockenspiel the fingertips. Is that I just love that idea that that's how you know you were visualizing this as almost like the Wicker Man almost thing, and you were climbing inside it. <laughs> that's what it's always like. But if if that effect isn't present when you write the song, you shouldn't be publishing it. That song is uh, for you, mm. like a dream or a page out of your diary. But if it's a walking body, like my musician friends and I used to liken it to a sort of a Frankenstein monster. Before I understood that the recording process can mimic the moment of inspiration and actually has to inspiration meaning breath so you bring breath to the body that you made i was making these horrible dolls <laughs> by <laughs> ripping the limbs off of songs and sewing them back on in a laboratory essentially and expecting it to walk around and be pretty you know <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> <laughs> and so now I have to work with that effect. And sometimes I like a little horror, but it can't come from a lack of breath. It can't come from monsters. It has to come from life and the song has to want it. So the, these bodies, in order to belong on Clear Pond Road, they had, a, they had to be inviting and fleshed out and honestly kind of gentle. So... Yeah, the fingernails in this case aren't claws like they are in 50 Foot Wings. They're black and shibiel. <laughs> it's shiny. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that title, Clear Pond Road, it's almost like kind of a, a you know, a, a tree of, of, of words that you might find in a, you know, poem from the Tang Dynasty or something, like a <laughs> Japanese poem where it kind of, they choose these three soothing words that go together but is there a real clear pond road apparently uh but my son and i just bought this street sign at a flea market when our oh. lives we were the, the only people left in our family my youngest son and i and we were looking for a way to not be jagged in our energetic and we weren't finding it. So we're killing time together. We're on the road together. He's a pro surfer. So we're always traveling. We're always moving. And it's we're very unsettled, shaky hearts that we shared. And we saw this sign and thought, yeah, that, 
that's where we need to get. So we'll buy this yeah. sign and we'll move it all over the country with us until we know we've arrived Clear Pond Road, you know, without the ripples on the, the surface, essentially. Yeah. And and we got there. So I hadn't earned that effect um, until I wrote these songs, I suppose. So these songs are the soundtrack to getting there. Oh, that's perfect. I that's thought perfect. so too. I and it's still up in my kitchen, yeah. like, don't forget, don't be a jerk, don't yeah. be jagged. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've, you've now earned the right to live on Clear Pond Road. That's what I was hoping. I don't know if anybody does that until they're dead, but yeah, I'm doing my yeah. best. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, you know, I know, a darker twist to it is it's that's a nice um, sort of euphemistic term for death, isn't it? Yes. Living on Clear Pond Road. Exactly. Yeah. And, you, you know, if you're cool with your own peace and still engaged to the point where you're in the mess and you're not ashamed of that, it, yeah. it kind of sounds like, like this. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask is kind of not directly a, about the record, but just about kind of the... I suppose related to your relationship with what you were saying about the the jagged aspects of the industry. I suppose like how an artist as famously kind of listener supported as yourself adapted to being part of a quote unquote record label like Fire Records uh-huh. and what that's been like. I was waiting for the paradigm to shift. I had been against record labels since I was about 14 when I started the yeah. band. I didn't want to be a pop star. I I knew there was no place on radio for us. And then gradually you see, well, there are these shifts in the landscape. And if you're invited, then maybe you could make a difference somehow. And then you end up on Warner Brothers and you realize a sexist product is running the show. Money is running the show. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to be a part of the problem. This is a very damaging, energetic, y'all have engaged in. I want to be part of the solution. And they say, absolutely not. It's sexist product. That's it. So I said, well, well, let me go. I got to get out of here. This is not where I belong. And they're like, yeah, we know we're not letting you go. <laughs> That's when you realize who the devil is. <laughs> yeah. And yet I knew what I was, I knew what I was signing up for. So by, by the time I did escape and become listener supported and walk my talk that way, which is not, it's not like I'm on moral high ground. I'm a true songwriter. I'm an actual musician. I, I'm not a pop star. I'd be really bad at that. And I didn't ever do this for money. I wanted to continue. So this is sustainability. And I've sold millions of records. I just didn't do it in a month. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted to sign up for the for the career, not the moment. And I'm very, very, very shy. If I could figure out a way to make records that no one ever listened to, that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't been able to work that. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because basically, you're. I'm I'm pretty sure at one point your relationship with with Warner Brothers was was then basically saying, okay, fine, but we, you know, we're not going to release another record by you for you know, a couple of years or something. And given your relationship with songwriting and given what kind of songs were to you, that's almost like a kind of psychological punishment it for is. someone they, like you, Yeah, isn't it? they said, you're, you know, you're, you're dead now, you're buried, you will not work. You, if, you, yeah. if you aren't, hi, boys, you know, with the commercial jingle, you're dead. And I thought, in your world, yeah, okay. Get that. These aren't bad people, honestly. They were okay people with okay record collections. They just knew the monster they were dealing with. So after going completely DIY with 50 Foot Wave, I I didn't have to wait that long for the paradigm to shift underneath and bubble up in the form of labels like Fire. So I no longer have to earmark funds for production, distribution, and publicity mm. because we work together. There's no under the auspices of. There's just, let's try to survive. And really, it would be hubris to imagine there's any other way to go about this. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Kristen Hirsch. You mentioned your youngest son. Is it Bodie? Yeah. And he, you said he's a professional surfer, which is kind of linked to the record that you've brought in to talk about today, which is mm-hmm. Experimental Jelly, the 2013 LP by 
you can correct me. I'm going to describe them as DIY Orange County garage surf pop slackers. <laughs> Tomorrow's tulips. The two mem- the two key members of the group are surfers, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot about soundtrack as a form, as opposed to a musical genre out there in Southern California. Because I said to Bodie, like my band 50 Foot Wave was, um, our music was in a surf documentary and we went to see some of it shot. And we're looking out into the ocean and I said to yeah. Bodie, I think we were probably on the road in between places. And I said, I'm a musician and a writer. I can live anywhere. Where do you want to live? And he said, well, here, I'm a surfer. This is where we have to live. So we settled into this community that's very driven and very sleepy, not unlike the first scenes that I was a part of when I was a teenager. A lot of love, like the word love, in a very desperate way. (laughs) Lots of hugging and obsession and intensity and that kind, the kind of passion that is also fearful, just like music. You don't know when it's going to leave or when it's going to kill you or kill your best friend. You don't know who's going to work and who's going to die. And the the surfing community is very much like that. I mean, there's sharks yeah. in the water. There, there's my son. He hit his, the board hit him on the head and he went down way out to seas and the hospital. Like it's, it's intense. Mm. And it was, mm. It reminded me of all my junkie yeah. friends when we were teenagers and what intent, how intensity plays here, but with a chin and a lot of weed. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, they're all smoking weed. And so obviously nobody sounds like my bands. <laughs> they sound like this. It's so sleepy. And as a producer, no. I, I find that the only, oh. the only enemy yes. I have is tasty. Do you know what tasty means? Like a, snappy drum beat or like a beer commercial distortion it's like uh, what what engineers think is good sound i think is bad and okay (laughs) i like that i like that tasty yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so it's difficult for somebody in a a band like throwing muses which is very intricate and detailed and 50 Foot Wave, which is essentially math rocks, really, really, really tight. Yeah. When you combine those, you get this sort of pretentious, like, tasty art thing. So I have to watch myself really carefully not to do that. And I yeah. tend to like things to be out of time and out of yeah. tune, muffled sounding, everything an engineer hates. And Tomorrow's Tulips is amazing at this. It's just, just they have loose down pat to the point where it, there's only sweetness, only kindness. You know, they don't have the monstrous effect that I do, and I envy them that. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should take a little break and play um, a representatively frayed and languid track by them. This is called He Quits, written by Tomorrow's Tulips and released on Burger Records in 2013. So when would have been the first time or way that you'd have heard the record? When when would it have kind of come into your world? Maybe five years ago. Yeah. So. And and via Bodhi or just kind of via Yeah. Yeah. It was Bodhi. Bodhi has such an ear for production and I have I have told my sons none of them is allowed to play or like music. <laughs> <laughs> so of course they all play and love music yeah rebels and Bodhi has an era for production against all odds that i really trust and so yeah. and i suppose it's it's what y'all had said earlier that it's sort of in in the room with the musicians but then beyond it in in the room with the world yeah like what what is your soundtrack what is the soundtrack of right now and 
as much as I call myself anti-fashion, meaning we should not be stuck on a linear timeline and then reduced to that functionality, I have to admit that's sort of the human experience. We have to deal with our finite reality, Mm, the fact that there is a line around our lifetime and face that sort of bittersweet sadness and um, be as effective as we can in that. And the sound of that would be that room mic to the world, would be that sort of looseness that Tomorrow's Tulips is able to grasp without being so uh, alert, like yeah. any, like most musicians are. It's like you gotta, you need a lot of weed to downplay that alert effect. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Kristen Hirsch. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me. With me. Oops. Oops. <laughs> Say your name. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was going to say, we were sort of talking about when, just um, before you came on, me and Andrew were talking earlier, but yeah, kind of, you know, that we spoke about the sort of the DIY independent side of things. I mean, do you find with things like Burger Records and bands like this that, you know, perhaps things that had sprung out of zines and tapes in the early 90s that we thought by now would have disappeared, they they don't go away. And you get records like that that sound yeah. like C86 or the Velvets or the Vaselines coming through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, I was always all about like all streaming services where however anyone can hear music that isn't reduced to the stranglehold of Mm. you will listen to what we tell you to listen to. (laughs) And that will encourage a musical literacy, encourage an idiosyncratic response. So people will then be responsible for their own opinions again and then and not reduced to that like fashion audience thing flavor of the month but i mean we're all familiar with that but it still plays a role and a very obviously a superficial one so i was amazed to see that my sons became so incredibly musically educated just because they would move beyond genre mm. and beyond era that's how you learn not to be lied to it's like we yes. we seem as audiences we seem to love the sound of a voice lying. Why? (laughs) (laughs) And then once you, you get past that selling that vanity, then you start to have a natural organic response. We were all born with, we just forget it because we're treated like consumers, I suppose. And I think you look at how kind of, I mean, to talk about YouTube now makes me sound like a very old man. It's like, yeah, YouTube granddad, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) The massive impact that YouTube had in terms of doing exactly what you're talking about, of of dislocating music from era and genre, and just Mm -hmm. that people would just listen to something and not know and kind of not care when it came out, like whether it was kind of, you know, 80s, 90s, early 90s. Right, right, right. And then, and even though, you know, there are so many things wrong with kind of, you know, online streaming sites, but the way in which it does that, the way in which it kind of, cross-pollinate sounds and you will have this kind of you know sort of laid back kind of bit of beach rock from the 70s next to some contemporary track and you know that's exactly what you're saying that kind of you and in a way it kind of it but a lot of it takes industry and ego out of it doesn't it you know it does absolutely does and I don't think that we are predisposed to focus on ego I, I think we're predisposed to focus on an organic visceral response that we then don't develop and it can be manipulated um, obviously for, for money, but to take money out of the equation is the whole reason 50 foot wave was DIY in the first place. It was just a cooperative. I wanted to see how far I could push that, um, no money effect. Like, let's take the almighty dollar out of this equation and see what happens. We'll just stay on the road, earning an honest living, and no one will measure our sales, anything like that. And we're going to give music away. And we did, I think, 2 million downloads of a record called Free Music, meaning it's free now and we're going to free music because <laughs> I'm a hippie kid. Yeah. <laughs> and Billboard freaked <laughs> like they called me at my house saying you can't do this we need catalog numbers you have to send us the record you have to register blah 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 blah, blah. and I'm like how'd you get this number <laughs> <Who are you? laughs> 
And so I talked to the guy who's a human, like most people. Mm. And I said, you're just trying to measure something that we actually didn't want measured. Yeah. And it's not like we dropped it out of a plane on anybody, but we're not making money. We didn't charge. And it's like, oh, you didn't charge. And <laughs> never mind. Like, <laughs> so I was like, I knew wow. it. <laughs> you guys yeah. are measuring money. You can't measure music anyways, you know, yeah. unless unless you want to try and measure impact. And that's when I realized, well, I'd rather have one guy buy this record and listen a million times than a million people buy this record and listen once. So I'm going to keep going on <laughs> and see how far we get. And so with something like 50 Foot Wave, did you find that the kind of, I suppose, this is going to sound pretentious, um, like kind of that sort of financial ideology affected the aesthetic and the sonic aesthetic of the band? Ooh, I like that. Yes, because finally no one was telling me to suck. Yeah. It's like... I had always been asked to dumb it down, to suck more, to kiss up to a camera lens, you know, shit like that. It's like, I'm not, this is not a flirtatious endeavor. This is actual music. And they'd say, okay, so straight white females? (laughs) It's like, uh, no, no demographics. Mm. This is a, a human thing. And they had never heard of humanity they never heard of visceral response so it takes a while for those invisible shoulder uh, heads to stop talking and to realize it's actually just us now and we're out in the world all over the world australia and europe and all over america for years and years and just living on a bus and you it goes away it goes away fast because if i had started to suck then i would have been called out for it yeah it wasn't really gonna i don't know how to suck like that but <laughs> i know they would have noticed if i tried <laughs> or, you, or you would just have a lot of fans who also sucked <laughs> that's true and i used to say that it's like poor warner brothers like i was saying i don't want to expand my audience i want to refine it they're like yeah oh, right <laughs> it's like i just don't want any more frat guys and chicks at my shows like i I want a real show mm. experience for the people who are there for the right reason. But to, you know, to call myself out, 50 Foot Wave was on tour for you know, our whole lives. And it eventually started attracting a violent crowd. Um, and it was because we were being used uh, by soldiers to, right. to get psyched for violence. Because of the like cathartic yeah, and, and yeah. confrontational nature of some of the music. Right. And I'm not saying we did anything wrong or that that's even inherently wrong because I know what we were offering was not manipulative, it was still artful, but the sound of it was co- like creating a lot of mm. aggression around us at mm. our shows and in the world. And that's why I pulled back and yeah, uh, 50 Foot Wave is now just a recording mm. entity. Yeah. And I can understand then why you would be drawn to something like Tomorrow's Tulips, where the sound is kind of sleepy and right. benign, but also kind of womb-like as well, you know, and kind of there's, there's yeah. something. And which is totally allowed. I'm not saying yeah. jump off a cliff. I'm saying this is all jumping off a cliff, so let's take it easy. I didn't know that thing about the, uh, as you say, the, what about the how it was affecting the people coming to your shows. I mean, for you, is that... To actually see, you know, something you've done as a piece of art and to make a point, to see what to see what you've done, you know, something and something being twisted into such a different way mm. than you intended and something that, you know, you've poured your life into and see what how it can be twisted and manipulated to the point that it's affecting your concerts. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't want to take it personally, but it's hard not to. There was yeah. a we would ha- we'd get on stage and we'd immediately have to find the exit. We pointed out to each other, and we just knew it was going to happen again at the end. Um, and once there was a fight, the, my my bass player jumped down into to try to stop, and I I just thought they're going to break your face and your hands. I don't really care about your <laughs> face, but I need your hands. <laughs> And so I jumped in and, you know, 
<laughs> I got hit. They broke a tooth. There's like blood oh everywhere. God. I just got the tooth fixed. You know, I had to pull my own tooth on the bus the next day. <laughs> that, that's when you start to think, hmm, how old am I again? <laughs> Too old for this anyway. But yeah, this, the soundtrack of my heart was very appropriate for mm. violence. Yeah. And so I, I have to sort of see that from above and realize that's actually true. And, and yeah. I align with these soldiers. I love these guys. I, I, I see a lot of um, PTSD sufferers at my readings because I have PTSD and we've talked a lot and, and it's a very similar kind of engagement on planet earth. So mm. I, I don't disallow for that effect, but yes, it was, yeah. it was heartbreaking. Which goes back to kind of what we were talking about at the start of the show about your changing relationship with the songs that you've written. And that obviously that's true of everyone, but of you, it's bound up in a changing knowledge of your uh, mental health as well. And kind of how those songs relate to your mental health and are used as as a way of coping, as a way of expressing them. And also kind of, I suppose, yeah, confronting those jagged, spiky edges of it all, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had always said, well, this isn't just me. And they, you know, people say, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't feel like an alien. I wasn't trying to put across any effort in that direction. And I certainly have never experienced mental illness from my point of view they they sort of applied that and mm. and told me oh you you suffer this way and i was like i'm pretty sure this is music and this is the mm. soundtrack to what's in here and they say yeah what's in there is really messed up as messed up as your music and it took this long for me to sort of parse the elements of that effect and say well obviously i have used some kind of visceral effect and the sonic techniques and it's had this impression on people but honestly ptsd is a coping Mm. mechanism Mm. i've never experienced what they say i have like depression and mania and all that it was just an intensity of life and music and sonic technique that had this effect and um so it's it's easier for me to swim through the noise of this it's not i don't take it personally, if that makes any sense. As personal as all of this is, it can't hurt yeah. me anymore. It's a weapon yeah. for me. But also, I suppose, because you have always kind of moved through these different kind of musical characters and different, you know, that occupy very different spaces, I suppose there could there's a, there's a maybe a simplistic reading of, of listening to Clear Pond Road. And also, I suppose, kind of, and then kind of, stapling on the the sound of you know the record that you brought in today um by tomorrow's tulips and say that you're at this place in your life now that is kind of calm and benign yeah 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 that's totally allowed everybody's okay. messed up and <laughs> and i'm really really old <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bad time that I settled down a little. Of course, you know, the, I'm making a record with the muses right now. Oh, wow. and oh fantastic. It's it's not um yeah, that's what you all got me out of today. But Oh, sorry. It's, it's <laughs> oh, very... no. Fans, fans in uproar and, and music session delayed once more by Mojo Podcast. It's about time somebody made me shut up for a minute. But it's a very happy record, uh, as was the last 54 Wave. So there's yes. something to it. It's just happiness um, can be very celebratory and loud, and happiness can be unusual. Like Clear Pond Road isn't just sweet. It's very strange. Mm, no, it's I, strange. I I like, to to I like optimize that, that baritone, it's a really yeah. weird sound. It's like a guitar as accordion. It's got all this air in it. Yeah, well, how, how did you do that? What is that? Like, that's, that's kind of what I was mentioning before. Isn't that weird? I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I octavized a baritone guitar. A baritone is just not, a baritone acoustic is not very common. They call it a, a guitaron in Mexico. Mm. And sometimes they play them as basses. 
um, like in Violent Femmes. Uh, this was I used as a rhythm instrument and then octavized it and added a Nashville-tuned uh, callings over it. Nashville is like the alternate strings tuning um, yeah. on a 12-string, so it creates a 12-string effect, but up on top, so it's not in time, because a 12-string is very jishy and very tasty. <laughs> so you create that <laughs> fullness. But, exactly. And I like to detune it a little and mess with people's heart rates by moving the kick around and stuff like that, just to make everyone feel really, really bad all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, it's obviously an album that you love. What would be the track that you would play to someone? Or what would be, so what would be your favorite track or even, even Bodhi's favorite track? Which is the track that you would single out? I think while the record as a whole is the effect that I'm so drawn to, the, the title of the record, I suppose, um, is in keeping with their sense of humor. So the, this ludicrous nature of this place we're in, it, it's, it's fed by our soundtracks, right? It's, it's kind of a joke. And when you say cosmic joke, you mean, do you get it? Do you get it or not? Yeah. And the, the song that helps me get it is a waste on, on this record. And it's, it's a little bit of drama, but, you know, compared to the sense of humor that is the rest of it, but it's not melodrama. And also, I suppose if they had to have a calling card for their sound and their philosophy, a waste would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Yes, it's, there's a kindness there. There's a humility without humiliation there. It's a nice place to go. Okay, this is A Waste, written by Tomorrow's Tulips and released on Burger Records in 2013. Tomorrow's tulips guys are going to be so surprised and happy. So oh, thank you. I, I also forgot to, have you ever met them? Have you met no, them? No, no. I mean, maybe my son's a surfer, like I said, so we know them in a surfing capacity, but I'm the mom, you know. <laughs> I, so I, you, you stay in the background. And, I do. Yeah. yeah. They call me Bodhi in a dress because Bodhi and I look so much alike and I'm happy to stay there. <laughs> they don't know what I do for a living or anything. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> well, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about this. I think I, exactly the reason I love Clear Pond Road is, as you say, it's 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 a calming space, but it's also a cryptic one. There's a, there are puzzles in there. You know, uh -huh. one of the things that I love about your lyrics is that with some, with some lyricists, I, you know, I'm listening to them going, what does that mean? And with you, it's more like reading a poem where the experience of reading it is is what the meaning is, you know. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I think <laughs> all of us live an impressionistic lifestyle, the, the three yeah. of us. And I think that's valid. It has not this is all autobiographical. I've never written anything that wasn't. And yet it's not about me somehow. Yeah. So to me, that's the impression of living here with y'all on earth. You make these funny noises, and obviously none of it's going to be tasty. <laughs> yeah. And we can approach Clear Pond Road, but hopefully we're not dead yet. <laughs> thank you, thank you for not sucking today. Thank you for not being. <laughs> thank you for not being tasty, um, Kristen Hirsch. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank Same. Y'all so are wonderful. Thank you. This is Kristen Hirsch. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record. Right, now we get to the part of the show where we rave about some new records. Chris, what have you been listening to this week? Well, this week I've really been enjoying the fifth solo album from songwriter, guitarist, composer and producer Blake Mills, uh, Jelly Rhodes, which is out today on New Deal and Verve. 
Um, I have to admit, this is his fifth solo album, and this is only really this kind of the second album that I've kind of been aware of him. His last album um, a few years ago, Mutable Set, I kind of got into that because he'd worked with Cass McCombs, who's a you know a songwriter that I love. And this time around, he's worked with a guitarist I've never heard of. I put my hands up. He's Chris Wiseman. Uh, he's a jazz guitarist. He's made thirty-five albums in the last ten years. And he describes himself as a transcendentalist hippie type. Um, and I think, yeah, as I say, th- this record, I think what is very good about Blake Mills is his sort of sense of texture and space that he can bring to a record. And I think this one, for me, it's kind of, it's even more sort of spacious and texture-based than the last album. Um, he sort of, for me, I think he's found a place between an artist like, it's almost like ambient on one side and, Americana on the other side, if you could sort of imagine a space between Arthur Russell and Neil Young, I kind of think, yeah, it, it sort of sits in there. And I, and I think, yeah, it's just something that I've just, my ears have just been so sort of tickled by just listening to it on headphones and just kind of lose myself in the textures of it. I love it. That is a very enticing description. Uh, this is, um, let's play a track. This is the absolutely lovely track, Skeleton is Walking from Blake Mills's Jelly Road written by Blake Mills and Chris Weissman and released on the New Deal Verve label. like yourself Blake Mills is a new discovery for me and yes I can definitely hear Cass McCombs in there I can also weirdly hear little bits of Paul Simon there's there's a track called um Press My Luck which is kind of got that kind of it's got a sort of throwback to kind of a sort of beautifully produced kind of 70s singer-songwriter style but it's also kind of a little bit like I mean adding to your your mix of um, Neil Young and Arthur Russell, I'd say an ambient Tom Petty, but oh, also kind of totally. cross with a cross with a little bit of the sort of whispered kind of indie quality of like Galaxy Five Hundred. Yep. Um, atmosphere is clearly what he does best: mood and atmosphere. Every song, the lead-in on every song is utterly beguiling. The one thing I think it lacks is strong melodic songs. I think it's a beautiful mood album. I think it's one where you just put it on and you lose yourself in it and you drift into it. What I don't get out of it is that sense of like, I mean, I think it'll be one of those, those albums where I listen to the record, but I just kind of contradicted myself basically by saying, I love the track press my luck. But apart from that track, I think I'm just going to hear it as a whole, as a kind of a mood piece rather than a collection of individual memorable songs. And I think it's interesting, obviously, with bringing in Cass McCoons on the last album, someone who is very much a songwriter, to be like, it's almost like I feel he knows what his strengths and weaknesses are. And I feel on that last yes. album, bringing in Cass McCoons for structured songs and melody, and on this one, bringing out an artist who is even more in that sort of ambient textural side of things to kind of explore those colours and spaces a bit more. It's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful calling card for his work as a producer. I mean, there is just like, there are sounds on there and it's just a feel to it that I absolutely love. And I just think, yeah, that the, you're right, that if he's working with someone who can bring in those, those hooks, those melodies, those choruses, those riffs, then you're going to have something really special. But I mean, as a fan, as a, as a man who has far too many ambient records in his collection, it seems a bit rich coming from me complaining that it's a, it's a mood album, but, and I'm not complaining. I absolutely love it. It's really By the gorgeous. choruses, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I would say that my record of the week is I, I can't imagine anything um, more in contrast to an ambient mood album. I've actually chosen two, two records by the same artist. Um, the artist is in question is Vivian Stanchel, 
and the albums are Dog Howl in Tune and Rawlinson's End. Now, I'm guessing that most people listening to the Mojo podcast will know who Vivian Stanchel was, but for anyone who doesn't, he was a great British music surrealist, I suppose. He was a former member of the Bonzo Dog Band, and in the 70s and 80s, he had a very peripatetic career, blindsided by his own mental health, his addiction to Valium, his addiction to booze. Um, there's, a, there's a Vivian Stanchel article in the current issue of Mojo, um, and I recently wrote a piece for The Guardian um, that goes into the full fascinating story of how these recordings were salvaged, which involved numerous legal machinations and incredibly detailed reconstructive work of the tapes. And then kind of um, the musician Andy Frizzell from the Wizards of Twiddly kind of basically working, almost imagining how Stanshaw would have wanted the finished records to sound. So adding strings, adding guitar, all that kind of stuff. The finished products I would say are something of a curate's egg, but I'd argue that the that Rawlinson end and the which is basically to explain Rawlinson end was a series of sessions that um, Vivian Stanshaw recorded for John Peel, and they were about the life of this kind of a dissolute group of the landed gentry, led by this kind of bibulous. Um, bigot called um, Sir Henry Rawlinson. And this is kind of like the the final statement of uh, the final collection of his adventures. And it's this kind of curlicued gothic masterpiece and a brilliant example of Stanshaw's kind of grandiloquent bucolic lyricism. It's, it's, a, it's kind of, it's spoken word and pieces of kind of wonky kind of, English garden music and in terms of like the his use of language this is this is a place where afternoons are the color of bruises where rain sounds like fly, where rain sounds like frying rissoles and clouds move across the sky like the glance of an expiring cod so here's a nice illustrative example of what Stanshaw was capable of from the opening track of Rawlinson's End this is Lady Rawlinson's Lilt, written by Vivian Stanshall and released by Madfish Records. For the last nine years, Rawlinson End endured. But like the maze that grew before the great house, its inhabitants were pickled, corkscrewed, maddened and without light. And in this sunless hole, overweening ivies reached, run their hands and throttled wisdom. Tunnels of ignorance and fear closed in Lucifugus clammy coitus. Only nightmare and dismay grew beards. But beneath the Indian arm wrestling vines, in the embittered shadows, good humour and song sweet tiny green defiance. Firstly, I was going to say it's a lot of ground covered managing to, uh, <laughs> you just, you managed to cover a lot of ground there very succinctly. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird and eccentric life and kind of, and there's far, you know, there's far more detail in the story than, you know, you could go on to in here, but it's kind of, if you like that kind of world of English eccentricity from like kind of, you know, Peter Cook and Stephen Fry mm. and kind of an Oscar Wilde and all those elements kind of combined into something that's quite kind of surreal and at times quite dangerous then i think it's worth giving it a listen a hundred percent i mean that's one thing that's kind of but i think you're touching upon that world of sort of peter cook and that kind of as i say it's it's rooted in that sort of footlights footlights comedy world and writing and you one thing that comes across in this is it's just the love and the the playing with language that i think perhaps i think kind of we've lost a lot in sort of certainly possibly in in more mainstream culture where the you know you know what I don't know you get like Stephen Fry on TV or something but there's that real sort of Edward Lear delicious and really chewing on words and playing with them which I think he's part of a lineage like that I think that really comes across this and this absolutely I think he is I mean it's ridiculous to think that he was only 51 when he died because he looked like someone who was 
thousands of years old. But I think that sort of inherent in him was this kind of, um, you know, kind of collection of great British eccentrics, you know, as you say, is yes. it, but you're going further back. You mentioned Edward Lear. You could have Aubrey Beardsley in there. You know, this kind of Victorian gentleman who kind of, you know, stood upright in bathtubs and sang the national anthem, you know, but but also combined with a kind of a darker, surreal quality. There's something disturbing mm-hmm. in, in, his, in, the, in the records that he made as well. Um, as I say, he's not for everyone, but once you get him and once you kind of understand what's going on in the weirdness because there's the kind of there's almost like sort of three levels to his weirdness there's a, there's the immediate sonic oddness and then beneath that you get the lyricism and the beautiful wordplay and then beneath that you get this kind of autobiographical melancholy a kind of sadness yeah. and richness going on so he's like kind of someone that you know kind of your initial encounter with him might probably very much like meeting the person in reality according to the people who knew him your initial encounter with him might be quite shocking or terrifying, but then the more you get to know and the more you find out how sort of, you know, charming or broken he could be. So, yeah, that's that's my record of the week. It's something that is kind of utterly unique, really, I think is the final thing I can Very say about so. it. Okay, you have been listening to Kristen Hirsch, Chris Catchpole, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club, and we hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. This is Kristen Hirsch. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Record. Club. The Professor cuts a rug.